Hello everybody, welcome to Health Hackers. I am Gemma Evans, journalist and presenter in the UK, and this is my series spotlighting unique figures in health. My guest today, speaking to us from Canada, is Dr. Blake Richards, a multi-award winning neuroscientist who specializes in understanding intelligence and memory. He's currently based at the University of Toronto. And what sets Blake apart from others in his field is his expertise in looking at how the complexities of the human brain could be replicated in computers and artificial intelligence. Blake was named winner of the 2019 Young Investigator Award by the Canadian Association for Neuroscience for his, quote, outstanding research achievements at the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Blake, thank you for joining me on Health Hackers and congratulations on your award. Thank you very much, Gemma. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So how would you describe what you do to somebody who perhaps doesn't know much about artificial intelligence or neuroscience? So the way I explain it is that when you look at any phenomenon in nature, there's often very general principles that apply to any object or any agent uh, that exhibits that phenomenon. So let me give you a specific example. When you think about flight, there are certain principles of aerodynamics that apply equally to birds and airplanes. And similarly, I would say there are general principles of intelligence that apply equally to our own brains and to computers. And my research is focused on trying to understand those general principles and trying to use the understanding that we gain from uncovering them to both really get a better picture of what's happening inside our heads and potentially to think about new forms of artificial intelligence. So we hear people compare our brains to computers quite a lot. Um, you're somebody who would really know how similar they are. Right. I mean, are they? I mean, are they that similar? Well, it depends on what you mean. Um, the at a sort of basic level, no, they're not similar at all. So uh, the thing that I think gets confusing for the average person, and not just the average person, it also is a point of confusion for many scientists, is that the actual definition of a computer is a very general abstract definition that is really more of a mathematical definition of what it means to do any kind of transformation of some inputs to a set of outputs using a fairly mechanical recipe. A computer is something that can do that in a mechanical way. And in that way, our brains and our laptops are both computers. Our laptops can take inputs like the keyboard inputs we give it, the mice, etc., and it can produce outputs what we see on our screen, what comes out of the speakers, and it does this according to some fairly well-defined mechanical rules. Where a lot of people might be less comfortable recognizing this, but all of the data points to this, is that our own brains likewise are effectively mechanical systems that transform our sensory inputs into the behaviors that we generate. And in that way, we are just computers. 
But where we're not computers is when you actually look at how our brains do that. What are the mechanical operations that happen in our brains versus what are the mechanical operations that happen in our laptops? And those operations are radically different. They, they might have some similarity at a very abstract mathematical level, but when you actually look at the nuts and bolts or the guts of it, as it were, they're not at all the same. So could a computer ever be as intelligent as the human brain? Yes, we have no reason to think that that wouldn't be the case. Um, I mean, it should be said that despite what I just said about the guts of our laptops, a lot of the advances in artificial intelligence in recent years have come from attempts to more closely replicate, in part, what happens in our brains. And it's still a very loose, abstract fit, but it does look like we can capture some of the basic functional operations in our own brains on a computer. And this is what allows our computers to do things now like recognize objects and images, translate speech for us, drive cars, etc. And at this point in time, there's no reason that we have ever been presented with to suspect that there are any things that our brains do that a computer couldn't do if provided with the appropriate mechanical recipe for transforming the inputs to the outputs in the way that we do. But it could never be kind of empathetic or sympathetic, could it? Could a, could a robot do that genuinely? Well, why not? I mean, it's a funny thing. What is empathy? So empathy means that when you see someone exhibiting certain behaviors, you first make an inference about what their mental state is. So you've engaged in what we call a computation. You have, you have taken a set of inputs, which are your sensory stimuli. You see the person crying or whatever. And some mechanical process happens in your brain where you infer that they feel sad. And then what makes you an empathetic person is if you take that inference and then you act on it in order to try to change your behavior to reflect the fact that you feel bad for them somehow. But to feel bad for them simply means that you don't want them to feel bad, really. And again, that's a mechanical operation on some level. And we, we know this because we know that we can manipulate that you know, people who suffer brain damage or who are on different pharmaceuticals will have changes to their empathy. So empathy is something physical, something mechanical embedded in our brains. And if that's the case, then theoretically, if you figure out what exactly that operation is, you could replicate it on a computer. So did you just say that certain drugs can change a person's level of empathy? Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, we, we all, I think, uh, have heard stories. Now, I think some of the stories are maybe uh, more or less true. There's some controversy about exactly what the drug uh, oxytocin does. Uh, oxytocin is a naturally occurring hormone in the brain, and it has many properties, one of which seems to be to promote social bonding. 
And there's some possibility that it can increase empathy when you're interacting with someone whom you have an, an existing connection with. But there's all sorts of complexities around it. On an even more gross level though, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but if you've ever seen a party full of people on MDMA, their empathy levels are very different from before they were on the drug. And that's ultimately just because of a small trace of a chemical in their brains that's changing the mechanical operations in their minds. It's not magic, it's physical. And that is a good evidence that our empathy is itself physical. I've never seen a party full of people on MDMA, but I'm gonna take your word for it. Okay, <laughs> take my word for it. <laughs> Now tell me, okay, when we see headlines, yeah. the robots are going to take over the world, they're going to take all our jobs, we're just going to become extinct as human beings. Uh, do you roll your eyes at those headlines or do you actually think, yeah, yeah, that could happen? Well, so I think that there are definitely some dangers from artificial intelligence. The danger is not a Terminator scenario where the robots gain consciousness and then decide to kill us all. That is a vanishingly small possibility, in large part because what many of the writers and movie makers fail to appreciate when they write these scenarios uh, is that, you know, at the end of the day, we program these agents, we decide what their goals are. And as long as we don't explicitly wire into them destroying humanity as one of their goals, that is a very unlikely scenario. A far more dangerous scenario is that military, uh, militaries around the world will start to adopt artificial intelligence for use on the battlefield in a manner that will remove some of the human input before they put anything like empathy in those AI agents. And it will mean that you will have scenarios where people will feel comfortable killing others without really having to think about it or consider what they're doing. And to some extent, even without AI being in the loop, we already see that with the use of drones, for example, uh, in the current attempts by the American government to fight against uh, certain factions in the Middle East. So, I think it's an all too realistic scenario because we've already started to go down that route. Um, the other question of course is job loss and I think that is entirely plausible. Exactly how that will play out is still to be determined I think, but it is, I would say again, something that we've already seen happen in terms of mechanization. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people fail to appreciate is that if you look at the uh, economy and you look at the role of manufacturing in the economy, although it's gone down, the number of manufacturing jobs has gone down by more than the actual drop in manufacturing in our economies. The, the difference is that we've mechanized manufacturing. It's, it's now done largely by robots and a car factory that used to have to employ, you know, 300 people can now employ 30 people. So, um, Given that we've already seen that with mechanization and given that we are getting better at producing artificial intelligence that can do some of the things that we can do, it would be surprising if we didn't see some job losses from that. Yeah, but you don't think that robots could really take over the world because we've got to be here to program them, right? 
we've got to be here to program them. We've got to be giving them their energy supply. We, anyone who's actually tried to program an artificial intelligence to do something will tell you how difficult it is to get it to say just, you know, recognize the difference between cats and dogs. The idea that you're then going to get something that is so capable that it can outsmart us and figure out how to get its own energy supply and its own weapons and outwit all our militaries and avoid our bomb, like it's a bonkers scenario. Anyone who thinks that that's a real concern hasn't actually worked in depth with artificial intelligence. And indeed, some of the most famous people who have voiced those concerns are notably not in the field of artificial intelligence. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Thank you, Blake. Now, I just want to explain to listeners and viewers that I actually got in touch with Blake initially after reading a news story over here, which had the headline, um, a poor memory could be a sign of intelligence, says New University of Toronto study. Now, that article went on to say that Blake had claimed that a strong memory is actually a severely overrated asset. And then when I spoke to Blake about it, or got an email back from him, he suggested that actually the article hadn't provided, I guess, the best description of his findings. So tell us what you really found and are forgetful people more intelligent? So uh, no, forgetful people are not necessarily more intelligent. But here's what we did find. Um, So my colleague and I, Paul Franklin, he was my former supervisor actually, we did a review of the literature on forgetting and we were examining the mechanisms by which forgetting occurs in the brain and in reviewing the literature on this we found that there's a lot of evidence that the brain actively forgets things meaning that when we forget things it's not simply that the mechanism by which we remember things fails but rather we actually have some kind of pruning of our memories some things are actually Uh, erased via mechanisms that require energy expenditure by the brain. So we started thinking about why the brain might do this. Why would the brain invest energy in forgetting some things? And uh, based upon work in artificial intelligence, uh, and in particular a type of artificial intelligence that I've already alluded to called artificial neural networks that are effectively very abstract simulations of how our brains work, we hit upon some of these sort of general principles that I mentioned. So one of the general principles is that uh, if you keep everything around in memory, you will be more likely to suffer a phenomenon called interference. So interference is when you attempt to recall something and you recall the wrong thing. We've all experienced this before where you try to come up with someone's name or you've got a word on the tip of your tongue and you get something back from your brain, but it's not the right thing. And, and like, you know it. So you're sitting there trying to go like, okay, Mary, Mary, no, her name wasn't Mary, Mary. And you know, uh, poor uh, Emma there or whatever is, is waiting for you to say hi to her and, and you're stalled. Um, so, This phenomenon is very well known in these artificial neural networks, and we understand mathematically why it occurs. And there are a variety of ways to avoid it, but one of the easiest ways to avoid it 
is simply to erase previous information if it's no longer necessary. So the, uh, one of the, the analogies that I give is, you know, we often will, uh, it's funny, nowadays we don't remember phone numbers at all anyway, because we've got them all on our phone, but I at least know my own phone number, but I couldn't tell you my phone number from five years ago. I totally forget it. Now, is that because my brain is faulty? No, it, it probably actively erased that information at some point in time because it was useless information that would only potentially interfere with my ability to recall my current true phone number. Um, so that's one of the reasons. And the other reason is that there's an interesting phenomenon in artificial intelligence called overfitting. And that's where if you allow one of these artificial neural networks to literally memorize every piece of data that they've ever encountered, they are actually worse at generalizing to new situations because they're too focused on all of the details of the things they've memorized previously. So for example, if you're gonna train one of these networks on how to recognize faces and you show it a, a database of say 100,000 faces and you say, okay, you know, like say you give a database of 200,000 images, 100,000 of which contain faces. And all it does is it memorizes those images. Now you show it a new photo with a face in it. If that new photo doesn't contain the details of the previous photos, it doesn't contain the particular mole that that person, that one of the people had, or it doesn't contain the car that happened to be in the background of one of the images, all these things, the network will actually struggle to recognize the new face. Instead, what we do in artificial intelligence is we use this technique called regularization, which is really just a fancy word for controlled forgetting where we force the artificial neural network to actually forget some of the information that it had stored. And if you do that, just a little bit of forgetting, what will happen is that you forget the details, but you're left with the gist, the thing that was common to all of the data. So for example, the thing that is common to all faces. So what it now remembers is not the specifics of every face, every little mole, or the backgrounds of the images of each face is. What it remembers is, you know, Faces broadly have two eyes and nose and mouth, et cetera. And so now when it sees a new face, it can recognize that face better as a result of that little bit of forgetting. So um, Paul and I proposed in this paper that the reason the brain actively forgets sometimes is both to avoid this interference effect and to help us generalize to new situations. And there is some experimental evidence to support this supposition, and Paul and I have been collecting some new evidence that way as well. So the right summary of what we're arguing here is that a little bit of forgetting is a good thing and is perfectly healthy. And that means that this explains why the average person doesn't have a perfect memory. So it should be noted, there are individuals with perfect memories are near-perfect memories. There, there are these people, there, the, the conditions called highly superior autobiographical memory. And I think they found like a handful of them at this point in time where they've been able to truly verify it. And these people seem to be able to recall literally everything that's ever occurred to them in their lives. And if that was such a good benefit, you'd think these people would all be incredibly successful and that there would be more of those people around for the record, because if it's possible to remember almost everything, why didn't evolution select for that as well? 
Um, but of course, what's interesting is that these people are not more successful than the rest of us. In fact, they describe their condition as frustrating and they tend to have symptoms that sometimes resemble OCD and they really don't seem to have any substantial benefit as a result of this perfect memory. So the takeaway is that that little bit of forgetting that we all do, where you occasionally forget something, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, most of the time that we forget things, we don't even notice it because it wasn't a bad thing. Like you probably don't remember the you know, particular color of dress that your kindergarten teacher wore on January 18th, 1987, or whenever you were in kindergarten. Uh, you know, I certainly don't remember the haircut of the bus driver who drove me to work three days ago, but I don't notice that I forgot these things. I just do it. The only time that we notice all the things we forget is when we occasionally forget things that we didn't want to forget. So really the distinction between good forgetting and bad forgetting is simply, are you forgetting things that you would ideally not forget? And here there's maybe an interesting tension between modern life and perhaps what our brains evolved to do. I suspect that a lot of the things that we forget are things that we didn't necessarily evolve to have a good kind of system for noticing like, oh, I should remember that. A perfect example is like exams, right? Like we all know the stress of trying to remember stuff for an exam, but when in human history where our ancestors sat down and told, okay, like just regurgitate this information that you've been told over the last six months. It wasn't something that was ever an actual task that we faced as a species. So there we find it difficult and there we get frustrated that we don't remember things, but that's because we've set up this kind of artificial situation for ourselves. And really, I think the only time that forgetting is actually concerning is if you're forgetting things that clearly, like 100% are ridiculous things to forget that you should remember. So, you know, that's when you know someone, when, you're, when you have a family member, say, who's developing dementia, they forget things like where they are. They forget things like, you know, what they have agreed to do later today or what they did earlier that day, who uh, a family member is, things like that, where it's like, this is, this is not things that a healthy brain should be forgetting. So in summary, uh, a little bit of forgetting is perfectly healthy. Given your knowledge of the brain, yes. do you have any specific tactics or techniques to help you retain information, to remember things like for an exam, for example. Right, so um, what I'd say that way is, you know, this isn't my area of expertise. There are some people who study specifically the, the question of what makes you more likely to forget something or less likely to forget something. Um, and my limited knowledge of that research, along with some knowledge about roughly how the brain works, suggests that there are a few essential things, which to some extent we all know. So the first is that you wanna make uh, networks of knowledge. We're more likely to remember things if they're embedded within a larger network of things. So random isolated facts, very difficult to remember. If I simply tell you right now, like, okay, in 1953, 
there was a man named Paul who traveled to Burundi. Like, you know, these things, you won't remember that. But if I give you an entire story and a history and it fits with another network of knowledge you have, you'll potentially remember it. So when we're learning for an exam uh, or when you're trying to learn something for a new job or whatever, the key is to have an entire network of things you're learning, multiple things that all fit together into a cohesive whole. That will make it more likely that you'll remember all of them. Another, which is obvious, is repetition. You know, one of the ways our brain seems to use as a kind of signal to decide what to remember and what to actively forget is whether or not it gets repeated a lot. And so if it gets repeated a lot, the brain takes that as a signal of, I shouldn't erase this. And so if you need to remember something, repeat it a lot. We all know this to some extent, it's fairly straightforward, but it's you know exactly how you have to go about doing it. Um, and the last thing that way is with both of those kind of a combination of repetition and building a network, you wanna time it so that you're, you're both repeating things and interconnecting them with other things, but not in an overly like condensed fashion. There's evidence that you need periods of consolidation. So you wanna learn something and then take a break from it and then learn something new that connects to it and take a break from it. And then learn that first thing again and then take a break. And then ideally get some sleep as well. And the more you intersperse periods of rest and especially ideally sleep with it, the more you'll be able to build these networks of knowledge that will persist for much longer. So we're basically just forming new networks, neural networks, and we want them to be as solid as possible and repetition and sleep can help with that. That's right. Yeah. Um, what has surprised you the most? If you look back at your career, and you're still quite young, but I mean, when you look back at the bulk of your career, studying memory um, and intelligence and neuroscience, is there anything that's really blown you away about the way our, our minds work, our brains work? Well, I would say that the more you actually study the brain, the more you realize that the simple things we take for granted are in fact mind blowing. So, and actually the more you study artificial intelligence, the more this is the case as well. So our ability to literally just walk and talk at the same time is phenomenal. Like honestly, it seems easy to us because we are built to do that and we learn how to do it very easily. But at the end of the day, these sorts of simple tasks are incredibly difficult. And that's been one of the things that I think has been most interesting um, from the, both the artificial intelligence and neuroscience perspective is the realization that what's so remarkable about our brains is that they take tasks that are hard and they make them look easy. And meanwhile, many of the tasks that we, this is maybe a flip side to that, is many of the tasks that we think are hard can actually be made relatively easy without too much effort. And it was likely just that we didn't evolve to do them. You know, a perfect example of that is math. Everyone talks about how hard math is, but math is actually easy. Math is a lot simpler than walking. Only our brains weren't made to do math, our brains were made to walk. So we're very good at walking and we're maybe not so good at math. But this is why, you know, or say take chess, right? Computers beat humans in chess decades ago now. 
but computers still cannot wash the dishes, literally. You know, it seems like a simple thing, but these basic tasks of ours are so much more complicated than we realize. Um, the other thing that I'd say that I've learned about the brain that is maybe uh, quite remarkable, and this comes back to the memory thing, is you realize when you study memory, the more you study it, that both not only are we actively forgetting things, but we're actively remodeling our knowledge all the time because we're building these networks. And part of what that means is that what we think of as being the truth is not actually objective truth. We can remember things, we can believe things, and they can be completely false. And there's a you know, well-known phenomenon uh, called uh, uh, false memory syndrome, where you can actually actively implant false memories in people just by suggestion. And in more recent years, neuroscientists uh, working with uh, animal models and some very advanced technologies called optogenetics have shown that you can also artificially induce memories in mice. And for all intents and purposes, the mice just remember that thing. They don't know it's an artificial memory. So you come to realize that what we consider to be clear, like solid reality is all just a construct of our brains and that really uh, we don't have anything like a firm grasp on reality unless we work together to create an intersubjective truth via things like science. So when someone is telling you a story about something that happened to them and they're recalling it from memory, are you always thinking, yeah, it probably didn't happen quite like that because everything's subjective? Yeah, um, to some extent, definitely. You have to take every story that someone tells you with a grain of salt. Now, some people more than others. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, this is a big problem. Say, we know at this point in time that eyewitness testimony, for example, is not actually that good even though it's considered the gold standard in uh, judicial cases. But if you actually look at the data, like people will remember the wrong thing a lot of the time. And so, yeah, you know, when someone's telling you a story, it's perfectly reasonable to take it with a grain of salt. Unless, of course, and this is where, this is how we construct truth, unless there are other things that back up their story. And so that's how we do it. That's how we determine what's true and what's not, is when multiple pieces of evidence point to the same thing being true. So like if one friend tells you the story and then independently another friend tells you the story in the exact same way, probably true. Don't when believe don't. everything you hear. Yeah. Um, what is next for you, Blake? Because you're, you're moving from University of Toronto, aren't you? I am, yes. My lab is moving to McGill University in Montreal this summer. And what will you be doing there? Well, we'll be continuing with our research there, uh, but we are moving there because um, currently I'm in the biology department in Toronto, but I'm a better fit for the new job they've given me in Montreal, which is in the, it's a joint appointment in computer science and neurology. And uh, I'll be stationed actually at the new Artificial Intelligence Institute in Montreal, uh, MILA. And there, they have brought together all of the artificial intelligence researchers from around Montreal into one place, along with a lot of the companies working in that space. 
So it'll be a really fun, uh, collaborative, open space to engage in this kind of research and this kind of thinking. Uh, and I think it'll be great for my lab. So will you be working on making artificial intelligence even more intelligent? Well, that's certainly one of the goals. Um, one of our principal goals when we're going to be there is to study more this question of what makes a good memory system from the point of view of actually acting in the world rather than simply winning a trivial pursuit, say. And from that perspective, we're going to be studying things like how do you actually decide when to forget things? How do you create these interconnected networks over time? And trying to understand that at a mechanistic computational level. So we're going to take inspiration from neuroscience, try to build models that explain the data in the neuroscience, but also then hopefully lead to better AI systems. I would love to hear more about how and why we hang on to certain memories and not others. So maybe you can come back and tell us more about that. Sounds good. Blake, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. And uh, viewers and listeners, if you like this episode of Health Hackers, I would love it if you subscribed on YouTube or Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.